Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Well, we are continuing uh, this morning a sermon series that we've been in for the past several weeks in the book of Acts. The book of Acts uh, tells us the history of the earliest Christian churches. Uh, this tells us, uh, as Luke, the author, same guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke, as he tells us at the beginning, he considered the first story that he told, the Gospel, to be all that Jesus began to do and to teach in his earthly life. And by extension, the story of Acts is what the church continued to do and to teach in the name of Jesus. It's the ongoing ministry of Jesus through ordinary men and women and children like you and me. And so what we're going to see this morning is really a theme that uh, is going to pick up over and over in the book of Acts, which is the book of Acts talks to us a lot about the way that Christian ministry and mission is meant to look in our world, the way that it looked in their world 2,000 years ago, uh, and the way that it looks in our world, not only the ministry of the gathered church, the stuff that we do together, but uh, the reality of the ministry that each and every one of us is called to, the ministry of our vocations, the ministry of loving our neighbors, the ministry of uh, living our lives and raising our families and being friends the ordinary ministry that we go about as we seek to love our neighbors in this world. And so, if, uh, if you are willing and able, would you please stand as we read God's Word? We're going to be in Acts chapter 3 this morning. And for our scripture reading, I'll read Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. Let's listen to God's Word. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, 
glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. In his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you now see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. This is God's word. It is absolutely true. And it's given to us in love. You can be seated. Well, I don't know what your house is like, but in my home on Christmas Eve, uh, I deal with uh, questions that my parents dealt with before me and their parents before them, and likely every parent who has children in the house on Christmas Eve deals with, and that is the beginning of the questions, Dad, can we start opening presents now? Right, Dad, maybe just one present. How about just a couple of presents? When can we start, right? We've had the, the church service, we've had the meal, and now the anticipation of ripping into the presence under the tree begins to, to ramp up. And they start pushing for uh, these questions. Can we open our presence now? And so, like my parents before me, I begin swatting away these questions deftly. No, no, it's the anticipation that makes it special. No, we have to wait. But in our family, we have given in just a little bit. And so we have a new tradition. Uh, every year, our kids get uh, one book on Christmas. Uh, they get a book that's reading, you know, age appropriate. We write a little Merry Christmas note in it. And that book we give to them on Christmas Eve, because let's be honest, in Christmas morning, uh, a book gets quickly unwrapped and thrown away uh, in the pursuit of toys. But on Christmas Eve, they open uh, their Christmas book. It may not be at the top of their waiting of their wish list for the year, but it is, I think for us as a family, it's a taste of what's to come, right? It's one little present uh, that points forward towards the abundance of what Christmas morning will be like, the celebration and the joy of Christmas morning. It's a sample, a foretaste of the abundance to come. Okay, why are we talking about Christmas on what is very much not a Christmas morning, a sweaty, humid, late summer morning. Because Peter, uh, here, when he goes to explain what's just happened to this man, when he goes to explain the healing miracle that's just taken place, his explanation is very much like that, that what's happened to this man is a foretaste of what one day is going to happen in fullness right, that this uh, gift that's been unwrapped by this one man who's been given the gift of being able to walk again is one of the Lord's gifts. And on, on a day to come, there's going to be so many gifts like that that it's going to actually just overwhelm, that joy is going to swallow up sorrow, that the gifts are going to be beyond measure, that, uh, that when the kingdom comes, is what he says here, uh, when Jesus returns to restore all things, then everyone is going to have what we just see here in this man's life in miniature, right? We might think of miracles as a break from the ordinary, right? There's the ordinary way that things work, the ordinary uh, uh, way that God governs his universe, and miracles are these spectacular gifts of God's grace. But another way to look at them is that miracles are the inbreaking into the present 
of what in the future will be true for the entire world. That it's uh, what we've just prayed in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We know that one day that will be true when Jesus returns to set every broken thing right. But God, in the midst of the here and now, sometimes gives us these tastes of his perfect will being done on earth as it will be in heaven. And so the mission of the church, the mission that we see Peter and John going about here is, is, as Peter says, in the name of Jesus, is continuing on in that work of Jesus, the work of Jesus in making broken things whole, the work that he did in his earthly life, the work that he will one day do for the entire world, that the church's work is to make broken things whole in the name of Jesus, pointing towards what he has done, as we're going to see Peter do, and pointing ahead towards what he will do, we live in the midst of a broken world seeking wholeness, seeking the mending of this world. Peter and John are on their way to worship, we're told. They are on their way going to the temple at the hour of prayer. Remember in uh, the, the chapter before this one, uh, just in last week's sermon, we looked at what characterized the life of the believers, the life of the church. And we were told that they worshiped together, both in their homes and in the temple courts. So they got together in small groups around tables and celebrated this life that they had together in Christ. And then they went to the temple uh, to worship God, to, uh, to celebrate all that he has done for them in Jesus. And so they're on their way to the temple and they're confronted head on with the brokenness of this world, right? And that's as true of us today as it was of them back then, right? We don't worship Jesus in a perfect world, right? Coming into church uh, doesn't mean that we pretend that nothing's wrong with the world. It doesn't mean that we gather together in a holy huddle and, and close ourselves off to the brokenness that surrounds us, the realities of a fallen world. No, we worship. We came to worship today from the midst of broken lives, driving through broken neighborhoods, in the midst of broken families and broken dreams, right? The Christian church doesn't live its life in a bubble. We live our life in the midst of the brokenness of this world. And the gospel that we proclaim, the gospel that we trust, uh, calls us to engage with what's broken in this world not just to escape from it, not just to dream of heaven where we're absent of it, but to root our faith and to live out our faith in the midst of a world that's not the way that it's supposed to be because of sin. And so Peter and John are on their way into worship. And a man lame from birth was being carried who used to be laid daily at the gate of the temple that's called the beautiful gate to beg and to ask of alms of those who are entering the temple for worship. So here's a man, we're told, who is lame from birth. He, he, for, for his entire life, he hasn't known what it was to have working legs, to be able to walk and jump and play and run. We're told in the next chapter that he was over 40 years old. So for 40 years, this man had lived a life 
that was unable to experience the fullness of what a, a, a life with legs and, and uh, would have meant for him. So as the other children uh, growing up were able to go and, and live their life and play and run and jump and do all those things, this man uh, lived a broken life experiencing these broken legs. For 40 years, we're told he had this experience. Now, often uh, in the ancient world, a life of physical brokenness also led to a life of economic brokenness, right? That he was unable uh, in that world uh, to work, to make a living. And so uh, he had friends that would carry him every single day to this gate, a gate of the temple that here is described as the beautiful gate. Uh, we think most likely that there was one gate into the temple uh, that a couple of hundred years before this had been overlaid with bronze, and so it was literally the most beautiful of the gates into the temple, and he would be laid there, hoping that the people as they came in to worship would be moved with compassion towards him and give him uh, some money that he was asking for. He did this, of course, because it was a part of the religious law of Israel that people were to be attentive to the needs of the poor, right? That as they went in to worship, their eyes were supposed to be open for people that they could help, for uh, people in their community that they could give something towards. And so this man for 40 years was born and lived uh, lame, as we're told. And this raises questions, doesn't it? I mean, this, this brings to mind uh, the story uh, in, um, in John chapter nine, where Jesus encountered a man that we're told was born blind. So just as this man was born lame, Jesus had earlier met a man who was born without sight. And the religious leaders came around Jesus and said, now who sinned leading this man to be born blind? Was it his sin? Was he sinful in the womb? Was it, was it his parents' sin? Was it because of somebody else's sin that this man was born this way? And Jesus, of course, says, no, it wasn't because of this man's sin or his parents' sin, but so that the glory of God might be made known in his life, right? When we run into deep brokenness, when we run into these, uh, these instances where, look, this guy isn't lame because of his sin. He's not lame because of his parents' sin. He's not lame because of anything that anyone did. It's just straight up looking the brokenness and unfairness of this world in the face. And our questions end up running up against, you know, brick walls. Why and how and who? But Jesus in that moment Instead of trying to explain away their questions and trying to, instead of trying to uh, square every circle for them, he entered in with his power and granted healing to the man blind. And Peter and John here show that their master, their rabbi, Jesus, has been rubbing off on them. That they've learned something of his manner of life, his way of relating to the brokenness of the world around him. Right? We see them now entering in into an encounter with this man. We see them continuing on the ministry of their master when he ran into the brokenness of this world. Look at what Jesus says in Luke chapter 4. Remember Jesus, when he went to worship in the synagogue at Nazareth and he opened the scroll and read from the prophet Isaiah, he said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus was saying, look, this is my ministry. 
This is the reason that I've been sent. The Spirit of God is on me for a particular purpose, to announce good news to the poor, freedom to the prisoner, recovery of sight to the blind, power to the broken, to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. And we see already here in the early church, Peter and John, two of Jesus's first disciples, picking that plot up and running with it, saying, yeah, you know what? If, if, if the Spirit was on Jesus to announce good news to the poor, and we believe that the same Spirit is on us, then our ministry must look something like good news to the poor, freedom to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, right? That's what the way Christian ministry takes its, ter- uh, its cue is to look back at Jesus and to learn from him how to love and how to live in the brokenness of this world. And the church in its earliest days learned this. And we as a church try to continue to live this out, right? This is one of the reasons why uh, we partner with ministries like City Rescue Mission, who work to provide shelter to the homeless and healing to the addicted. It's one of the reasons uh, we partner uh, with Juvenile Justice Ministry, going to visit those who are imprisoned as children. It's one of the reasons we partner with Surge in Uganda, searching to bring clean water to those who might not otherwise have it. It's because we're picking up a plot that's been running for 2,000 years and even beyond that, right? A plot that goes all the way back to Jesus of seeking to serve and announce good news to the poor, believing that Jesus is in the business of making broken things whole. And so... Peter and John walking into the temple. And this man uh, is there begging as he was every single day. And he cries out to them asking to receive alms. And let's look at what Peter does. I I love verse four. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them. Look, we've all been in those moments where somebody in need comes and asks for you to meet that need. And there's something in those moments where you know that even even if you, you answer yes, even if you give something, that there's something inherently loaded in those moments. There's something that feels awkward, uh, isn't there, for both uh, involved in that exchange, right? There's something uh, that the person asking feels shame. Look, I hate that I'm having to ask. I hate that I'm in this place. The person giving often feels shame about about being caught in the interaction of looking eye to eye, sitting face to face and dealing with the person, right? So often, more often than not, whether on both sides, if you notice the way these engagements go, we try to keep our eyes cast to the ground. Either the person asking, looking down in shame, the person either uh, responding or trying to avoid the person uh, with their eyes, trying to avoid eye contact. I'm guilty of this in my own life, right? I mean, I, I, uh, just the other day, going into five points at the end of a long day, going in just to get a cup of coffee. And I, re- I admit feeling like, man, let me just get in and out of the coffee shop. Let me just get in and out and go on with my day. Let me not have to deal with any. Of the, of the need that's there around me in that moment. And yet that's not what Peter and John do. What do they do? He's just crying out for a little bit of change and they stop. And he says, look at me, look at us. And he looks at them and they look at him. And in that moment, there's just these three guys looking at each other. 
and you know, whenever, whenever Luke, whenever any of our biblical authors give this much attention to something, they're saying that it matters, right? Oftentimes they narrate stories with very little detail. But so when you get some synonym for looking, gazing, giving attention to in these two verses, Luke's saying, look at what's happening here. These are two people responding not only to a physical need, but also willing to address the shame that lies at the bottom of the need. Right? Again, this is something that they learned from Jesus. That Jesus, even when he treated people's physical needs with utmost seriousness, he was always looking beyond the need itself. Remember uh, the story of the woman who had been bleeding for years and years, and she reached out in the crowd and sought to touch Jesus's garment. She's healed in the instant, right? She's healed immediately. And yet Jesus goes to her and he talks to her. He looks at her. He asks her to tell him her story, right? That he wasn't just interested in the physical need, but in the shame that lies under it, the isolation and the guilt and all that can be there. And so here's Peter and John and the man looking at one another as equals, not looking away, not casting their gaze down, but giving him the dignity of seeing him and acknowledging him. I wonder in reading this if they're remembering a great story that Luke included in his gospel, the story of the Good Samaritan, right? With two other men on their way to worship, right? The priest and the Levite walking on their way to worship and passing by the man bleeding in the ditch, unwilling to look, unwilling to see and to set their gaze on him. And yet here, Peter and John, having been well discipled by Jesus, draw the man out and look at him. Now, unfortunately, it seems Peter goes into his pockets uh, to look to give the guy something. He doesn't have two nickels to rub together, right? He doesn't have uh, a denarius in his pocket. Remember, Peter uh, was not a wealthy man. He was a fisherman who'd left everything to go and follow Jesus. And so when the man asks for money, Peter responds, look, silver and gold I don't have. I don't have what you're asking me to give you, right? I don't have in and of myself the resources to meet your needs. And I think there's something beautiful about this. That real ministry, real love of our neighbor often begins when we reach uh, the end of ourselves, our inability to give somebody what they need, right? How, How often do we allow our lack of resources to keep us from entering into the life of our neighbors, to keep us from entering into brokenness? I think the church, we're very often accustomed to believing that the way we interact with the world has to be from a position of wealth and power, right? That we're the people that have the answers, giving the answers to the people who don't. We're the people with the resources, giving them to the under-resourced. We're the people with the money, giving it to the broke and the down and out. And yet what Peter and John, where they meet this man is in a condition of shared poverty. They meet the man in a condition where they go, look, man, we could use somebody actually giving us a little bit. We We don't have anything. But what Peter does is he goes another step. He goes, look, from the world's standpoint, I may not have much to give you. I may not have the silver and the gold that you're after. But what I do have, I freely give you. And here's the whammy. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, get up and walk. 
right? I don't have uh, everything you might need, right? I'm also, in a manner of speaking, poor, but in my poverty, I have incredible riches, right? In realizing what I don't have, I've come to realize this unique treasure that I do have, and that treasure I'm offering to you. I might be poor, but Jesus is rich. I might not have resources, but Jesus has all of the resources of heaven. I might not have uh, anything to speak of to give you, but I can point you to Jesus, and he has the power to heal you completely, to set you on your feet, to set you uh, on the path again, and to restore completely beyond what you even think or know how to ask. Thomas Merton once said, the life of hope is a life of poverty. A life of hope is a life of poverty. Now, Merton uh, was a monk, so he had literally taken vows of poverty and given up everything. But what he's getting at in that when he says that is this idea that real hope doesn't come when your future looks good because you have everything you need, right? Real hope doesn't look like you've got the job you want, the family you want, the friends you want, and your life is going perfect. You have everything you could ever pray for. No, hope comes when you realize that you, you only really need one thing. Right? You may not have so much of what the world has. You may not have much of what your neighbors have. You may not have much of what you thought you'd have by this point in your life. And hope comes when you realize that you cannot have all of those things and still be okay if you have the one thing that you need, the one thing that can't be taken, the one thing that's secure in your life, the love of God given to you in Jesus. Right, I'm reminded when Peter says, I don't have silver or gold, but what I have, I give to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I'm reminded of that scene in, in John chapter six, when all of Jesus's multitudes that were starting to follow him walked away and he turns and asks his inner circle, he asks his disciples, look, are you guys also gonna go? Right, is this the moment where you guys also turn your back on me? And you remember what Peter says? He says, Lord, where else can we go? Where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. That's the same Peter that's now looking at this guy going, man, I, I don't have much, but I know the one who has everything. In the name of Jesus, stand and walk. And then I love just the eruption of joy that happens next. Verse seven, he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Luke, uh, we believe, was a physician by training, uh, a doctor. And so I love these little health details that he gives us, that his ankles and his feet become strong as he stands. And he entered the temple, he, he, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. I love this. The story that begins with a man, uh, like every other day, sitting there begging, ends with him not just walking, right? That'd be, a pretty good, that'd be a pretty good end to the story. If it went, Peter helped him get up and he walked and he went on his way. But no, he leaps up, he jumps up, he's running and dancing and praising God on his way into the temple with him. And everybody there in the temple says, oh man, 
that's the dude that used to not be able to walk, that used to sit by the gate every single day and ask us for, for money. And so they begin to ask, how did this guy get this way? How did he get? I love it. In verse 16, where Peter says, uh, it's his name by faith in his name that made this man strong, whom you see now. And has given this man perfect health. The Greek word there is literally the word wholeness. That he's made this man whole. He's made a broken man whole again. Right? And it does prompt people, if, if you're used to living in a broken world, when you see wholeness, when you see someone move from brokenness to wholeness, you go, how did he get whole? I'm broken. The world's broken. How did this guy get whole again? And so Peter stands and he begins to answer their questions in verse 11. I love, I love this. Peter uh, is shown by now to be somebody who never lets a good crowd go to waste. He's at Pentecost uh, when everybody saw the rushing of the wind and the falling fire and they gathered. Peter says, okay, here's a crowd. I'll stand up and I'll preach. Right? And he does the same thing again here as people are pressing in, having seen the sign, having seen what happened. Peter gets up and goes, okay, I'm going to tell you what happened. Right? The church's ministry, our ministry, your ministry of loving your neighbor, it, does, it, it starts very often in these tangible acts of love and service, helping to actually remedy the real physical brokenness of this world. But for the ministry to be genuinely Christian, for, for loving our neighbors to be a Christian love of neighbor, it's usually, it must be followed with words, right? Not just uh, deeds, not just love and action, but then pointing our neighbors towards the one who gives hope and healing and wholeness. And so Peter does just that. He stands up to tell them what he means when he says in the name of Jesus, who is this Jesus? And he does it in the most beautiful way. As we, you know, we see now after Pentecost as well, the theme that's developing of the way that Peter presents Jesus is he, he, points him, he points towards him as the one that the Old Testament has been talking about for all this time, right? It's the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the heir of David's throne. He's the, as we're going to see later in this chapter, uh, the prophet like Moses, right? That he puts all of this Old Testament imagery together to say he's the Messiah, Right? He's the one that you've been waiting for. He's the one that's going to set all things right. He's the king who's been promised and who's now here. And then he says to them, as he did to that first audience, and you handed him over to death. Right? When God himself, the God of the Old Testament, the, God, the creator God, visited this earth, humanity did to him what humanity has been doing to God since the Garden of Eden, rebelled against him didn't recognize him, chose the life of sin and idolatry over and against the, the one that Peter calls here the author of life, the one who made you, the one who loved you, the one who calls you. You handed him over to Pilate, the Roman governor. And when, when Pilate was at a place where he was ready to, set, to let him go, you demanded that he crucify him and let the murderer go free. We see here the beginning of what's going to be fleshed out more and more in the New Testament, which is this idea that the cross represents Jesus getting something that he absolutely did not deserve. What to all outside appearances uh, looks to be a miscarriage of justice. 
holy and innocent and righteous, handed over to death. So that, as he says here, a murderer could go free. So that those who don't deserve life, who don't deserve mercy, who don't deserve grace, can receive it. Peter cuts hard when he starts talking about sin. You've denied the author of life. You've denied the one who made you and loves you. And yet look at the extravagant grace that Jesus offers. Verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. This is the first of a beginning of, of several uh, gifts that Peter offers them. He says, repent, turn, turn away. Turn away from, from this way of life that led you to reject the author of life. Repent. Repent simply means to turn around and receive him by faith so that your sins might be blotted out, so that you can receive forgiveness of sins. This is Jesus dealing with the brokenness that's at the very center of all of the other brokenness of the world. Right, yeah, there's all sorts of brokenness in this life. There's physical brokenness, relational brokenness, economic brokenness, political brokenness, moral brokenness. But at the heart of all of that, there's one relationship that's broken that causes all of the rest of our lives to spiral out. It's the brokenness of our relationship with God that we've broken our relationship with him through sin. And Peter says, look, turn, repent, and all of your sins will be blotted out, washed away, dealt with forever, and done away with. At the core of what Jesus offers, before even things like healing and being made whole, is this offer of being made right with God through the sacrifice of Jesus. That Jesus would take your sin and you receive his love, his righteousness, his perfection. That's the offer that he has. It's the offer that Peter gives here. It's easy in accounts like this, accounts of miracles, to have our attention diverted to the miracle. I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's wonderful. And yet, it always is meant to point us beyond that to the thing itself, the offer of forgiveness. Remember that scene in Luke chapter 4 where uh, Jesus is teaching in a house, and the house is so crowded that nobody can get in to see Jesus anymore. And a group of friends want their friend to get healed by Jesus. They know they've got to get him to the feet of Jesus. So they, they cut a hole in the roof and they lower him down. And Jesus, seeing their faith, he says, get up, take your mat and walk, just like Peter does here. He also then says, your sins are forgiven. And they say, to him, and, and they say who are you to forgive sins? And Jesus answers, he says, what's easier? To say, get up, take your mat and walk, or to say your sins are forgiven. And I confess, every time I've ever read that passage, I say, well, it's, it, it's a lot easier, actually, just to say your sins are forgiven. I can say that. I can't tell somebody to take their mat and walk and they get up and do it, right? It seems much more difficult, right, to heal someone than it does to say your sins are forgiven. And yet what that points to is that for Jesus, for the author of life himself, it cost him very little to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But the blotting out of our sins took everything. 
It took his life. It took his blood. It took his sacrifice. It took his very self. And so when Peter says, come and turn to him, that your sins will be blotted out. This is the greatest miracle that's offered to us in Jesus. But he goes on. He doesn't stop there. It says that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all things. You know, this is, uh, he's saying, look, this, this thing that you've seen here, this healing is a time of refreshing. This is like living water trickling out of the God who will one day send this kind of healing in a flood, right? This is a taste of the restoration of all things. And with all four tastes, we're supposed to let the taste lead us on to the thing itself, right? We're supposed to taste the restoration, the freedom, the beauty, the goodness of what Jesus does for us in our lives. And then let that lead us on to what he ultimately promises us. You know, a few of us um, this week had the opportunity to get together with a, a really remarkable man. He's one of our missionaries, uh, a man named Paul DeVokmar, who works for an organization uh, that he founded called India for Christ Ministries. And uh, we get together for lunch. He's in town uh, for a little bit. And uh, we sat down with him and just talked about what his ministry was like in India. If you followed the news at all, you know that for the past five, six years, uh, it's gotten much, much harder on all religious minorities in India, right? For Christians, for Muslims, for anyone other than uh, Hindus, the government has taken over that is kind of a nationalistic, fundamental fundamentalist Hindu government that's trying actually by next year to outlaw all other religions and kind of unite India under a strict Hindu observance. And so uh, Paul, who's had relative freedom to preach the gospel in the villages of India, to care for orphans, to uh, give people jobs. I mean, they do this really amazing holistic work of healthcare, uh, orphan care, church planting and evangelism, uh, helping uh, men and women, women especially, to get jobs so that they're not a uh, victim to the sex trade and other things there uh, that afflict the poorest of the poor in India. And yet now, uh, their evangelistic ministry has been outlawed by the government. And yet he says that they are able to continue to exist uh, as India for Christ Ministries as a nonprofit. But what they have to do, he said, we've had to change our ministry where we go from being kind of equal parts evangelism and holistic care for the poor. And now we have to lead with care for the poor. That's, if anybody asks, the reason that we're there is to take care of the sick, to take care of orphans, and to provide job training. But what happens as we go into these villages, as we go into these crowded cities, and we begin to love the poor, what eventually happens is people turn to us and go, why are you doing this? Why are you caring for us? Why are you taking our orphans and helping them to have hope? Why are you, uh, if you remember the, the way that COVID hit India was really awful. And they were able to create a COVID clinic and provide care and have pretty good results in offering a care when, when many who were going to the hospitals were dying. And so many people in India started looking to them and going, why are you doing this and how and point us towards it? Just like they did for Peter and John. Right, And that's the hope that the church brings to the world, loving our neighbors, offering these moments of refreshment in a broken and hard world. And then when our neighbors, when our friends look at us and go, why on earth? In a world that's bent on you know, self-absorption, where everybody's taking care of their own needs, 
why and how? In whose name are you doing this? And then we, like Peter, can say, in the name of Jesus, in the name of the one who's made us whole, the one who's blotted out our sins, come and join us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to know more and more of your power in our lives. We want to taste more and more those moments of refreshing that are promised here in Acts. Lord, we confess our cynicism. So often we look at the moments of joy and healing and beauty and cynically say, yeah, well, we know that's not the way it really is. We know that's not the real world. But Lord, help us to live our lives in light of the world that you've told us is the real world, the world that you are bringing into being, where all things are restored, every broken thing made whole, every crooked way made straight. And Lord Jesus, uh, it astounds us that you would use us in the mending of this broken world. But we ask that you would, as a church and as individuals, use us, we pray, for making this broken world whole in your name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at Christchurchintown.org.